to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. With me, as ever, is John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm very well. We have an archive session for everybody in this edition of the podcast. We're going back to 2015. Tell us more. Yes, it was one of my first sessions, David, actually. Uh, London Leaders Performance Summit in November of that year. And the session was called Conciliary, Leading from the Shadows. And it was Deputy Chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi, Richard Heitner, talking about his new book of the same name. Uh, Richard Heitner, then Deputy Chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi, he went on to found his own uh, management consultancy, a creative management consultancy, at Beta Baboon in 2016. And uh, that featured a little bit in his uh, presentation. He did. He talked about Alpha and Beta Baboons. Um, and it was talking about assistants, really, and deputies and why they're important. And as he put it, why second can be best. Anything else we need to know before we uh, dive in? He talked about honour and contentment being important to a number two and why having a seat at the table is a great thing, but being a number two gives you time to think. And he also said that you need to choose your leader carefully as a number two, which he delves into that little bit in the session. Good stuff. Richard Heitner from London 2015 coming up very shortly. Before that, let me just remind you, as if you needed any more uh, persuading, to join us uh, at Red Bull Media House in Los Angeles for our latest Sports Performance Summit, 16th and 17th of March. Uh, Speaker announcements imminent, uh, so do check out leadersinsport.com for all the very latest information, and we look forward to seeing you there. Shall we get going with uh, Richard Heitner? Yeah, let's do it. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I would, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you about seconds in command. And uh, I thought what I would do, though, is just for those of you who want the easy must-read on leadership, uh, before you buy my book, you really ought to buy this one. Uh, from a man who I know is adored by people at the Emirates and all things to do with Arsenal. Um, he uh, teaches what he calls his Ferguson formula at both Harvard Business School and more recently London Business School, and he's got leadership down to eight easy lessons. And in truth, uh, having read the book, I would commend you to this if you're interested in the topic of leading from the front, because uh, Ferguson's latest book, written with Mike Moritz from the Silicon Valley, uh, is full of great insight. My own formula, though, is, is much simpler than that, uh, and it comes from the school playground, for those of you young enough still to remember that. It's about first the worst, second the best, third the one with the hairy chest. And I'm here absolutely to talk to you about why second can be the best. From all of my research, why firsts need their seconds and what it is specifically about them that they need so badly and that they value and then to think and reflect on the, the vital dynamic in power and the relationship that exists between uh, the firsts and the seconds. And I'm acutely aware that many of you in this room as performance directors, as coaches, as GMs, are operating as both first and second, often at many times during the same day. But I don't believe that we've spent enough time consciously thinking about that leadership muscle of operating uh, as a second. I think it's only fair, though, and the first wouldn't forgive me if I didn't, that we start with the firsts and the life of the firsts, which, in my mind at least, resembles 
often uh, the life of a lone wolf, having done it myself for 20 odd years and been a chief executive, albeit in a business far less complex than those that you operate in, um, it felt like a very lonely existence. It's also true uh, that these lone wolves, at least some of them, rather love the limelight and their position in it. So whether you're talking about uh, New Labour's former leader, or Apple's former leader, or indeed Chelsea's current leader, I think he is still their leader, um, they rather love the limelight, the, and that's our, that's our construct, it's what we've done to these people. Uh, it's popular culture that drives our obsession uh, with these number ones. We only have to watch uh, Match of the Day, Sky Sports, BT, read the papers to see these uh, football managers, uh, for example, pumping their fists in the air every time a goal is scored, as if it was simply their genius and only their genius that got that ball over the line. They rather love hoovering up all the credit. And it's, it's, it's worth saying that when I started researching this book, it was out of anger. It was out of frustration that so much of the credit accrues to this singular, mystical, uh, rather mythical and strong, charismatic leader. At the end of my research, I decided very firmly that we do need these charismatic leaders. We badly need people who are prepared to take the pain of the punitive glare of the media, the public scrutiny. We need people charismatic enough to rise above the din, to set the standards, and indeed to lead us. So um, it's these lone wolves that um, take all the pressure, and it's these lone wolves that, if you like, um, we celebrate their easy uh, inches to write about in the press. Uh, we publish all the time league tables of best-performing managers or coaches or CEOs. This is from Harvard Business Review's November issue. It's a league table of best-performing CEOs. And before you uh, rush to buy it, incidentally, uh, I think it's already out of date because VW's CEO, Martin Winkerton, is there at number 20. Uh, I think we'll see in the December issue that he will struggle as he looks south to even find his name. And that's what we do with number ones, of course. We rather revel in their kind of descent from hero uh, to zero. Uh, we, uh, if you remember, uh, loved seeing Ed Balls lose his uh, seat, uh, not just lose it, but lose it publicly on TV. Uh, the incoming chief executive of Tesco a couple of years ago, Dave Lewis, was described as the embattled CEO only two weeks in post. Those of you who study Yahoo will know Marissa Meyer is constantly having to justify her CEO-ship uh, of Yahoo and uh, to settle investors' frustrations. It's happening all the time. And uh, Dick uh, Costolo, the, the, the recently departed um, outgoing CEO of Twitter, was asked by somebody on Bloomberg this question. You became CEO of Twitter five years ago, Mr. Costolo. When did you realize you were done? At which Dick Costolo said, you make it sound like I'm dead. I'm not done. And one hopes the same is true of uh, people like Stuart Lancaster there, that he's not done, that one assignment that goes wrong for a great leader doesn't mean he's consigned to the history books as a doomed leader much as the Indians felt when Sachin Tendulkar, who reluctantly stood up to be captain of their cricket team, he didn't want it, he said he'd be no good at it. They insisted, he took it, he failed as a test captain and lives with the consequences having failed in that leadership role. The same true of David Moyes. So it's, it's simply not on that we do this and it strikes me that we ought to celebrate 
when we've parked our irritation with their excessive narcissism, we ought to appreciate what our leaders, our ultimate leaders, do for our organizations and indeed for us. But I am here to stress that I think there is deeper contentment and potential value in making a leadership contribution from the shadows. Thomas Jefferson, who was President of the United States of America as well as Vice President, talked about the splendid misery of being the President, whereas he said the second life, the second role is more honorable and it's easy. Now, I, I dispute the fact that it's easy, but I think there is great honor in it, greater contentment to it, uh, and I'd like to kind of immerse you in that and hope to bring out some of the joys that you feel if indeed you're serving that kind of role uh, with anybody uh, of a higher authority. Um, I went when I was researching my book to uh, baboon theory. Some very clever field biologists have worked out in studying baboons, alpha baboons and beta baboons, that it's the alpha baboons who are crazily stressed and that the beta baboons spend a life of less stress and far greater enjoyment. In fact, I was tempted to call my book uh, Baboon Leadership, but the publisher turned that one, uh, that, that one down. But it's these kind of beta baboons who spend their life in the shadows making massive contributions uh, to both their A's, the ultimately accountable leaders I call them, and their organizations. This, of course, is Steve Peters, who David Brailsford was immediate to point uh, out to me when I interviewed him, you know, who's the greatest C that you have in your very diverse circle of C's? Who's had most influence on you personally? It's Steve Peters, because he was courageous enough and is courageous enough to hold a mirror up uh, to his leader's uh, behaviors. There's uh, a Miss uh, Moresmo, who worked for Andy Murray, still does. You will remember the column inches devoted to the stupidity of Andy Murray's decision to dispatch the rather moody but brilliant Ivan Lendl as his coach in favor of Amelia Morismo. In fact, she took all the heat and has worked out as being a magnificent uh, coach. And David Gill, who I interviewed, uh, was described by Alex Ferguson, who I also interviewed after the publication of the book, as deserving his own statue at the Theatre of Dreams at Old Trafford. Such was his impact on both Sir Alex and, indeed, uh, Manchester United. So these are the kind of characters I'm talking about. I shorthand them for the purposes of kind of ease of reference as conciliary, uh, rather because I love the Tom Hagen character uh, who serves the Godfather, in fact, two Godfathers so magnificently. And whilst the application of my work is, is for organizations with a great deal more legitimacy than the Mafia, uh, I do think conciliary uh, is a great kind of descriptor for the kind of roles that I think many of you as performance directors, sporting directors, even general managers uh, perform in your lives. Um, I, I summarize the kind of difference between A's and C's as follows. The A's, the people we kind of stereotype as the overall bosses, the presidents, the chief executives, uh, the directors, the team leaders, uh, they're the A's, the ultimately accountables. The conciliary are the kind of people who we would normally describe as the number twos, maybe the veeps, uh, the chiefs of staff, the deputies, or indeed uh, the lieutenants, the trusted lieutenants. Although I have to be careful here, I read uh, when, uh, when um, Seth Blatter was uh, hitting trouble, calling his cronies trusted lieutenants is an insult to trusted lieutenants. So uh, we have to be a little bit careful. Many of you here will have noted in that kind of split between A's and C's that you do both. Uh, Barbara Hannigan here, who's an extraordinary conductor, and she would routinely conduct three movements of a symphony before 
putting her baton down, turning to the audience and singing as a soprano. I don't know how kind of ambidextrous you are in your leadership roles, but certainly many of you are looked up to as A's of your team, of your staff, whilst at the same time acting as a C to some higher A. So you live with that ambiguity. And some of you, as C's, may in fact aspire to being the A of your organisations at some stage, which is fine as long as you declare that ambition uh, openly and don't keep it to yourself. Um, and there is great pleasure to be had in the life as a C. Um, this is what Jean Kilroy said, Jean Kilroy II, who was first into the ring uh, when Ali regained his world championship title uh, in that famous Rumble in the Jungle uh, fight. And he said the follows, nothing will ever take my memories away of being with Muhammad Ali. His voice momentarily cracking. Millionaires and billionaires would pay their fortune to have done what I did. When I was with Ali, I sat with kings, presidents, emperors, queens. You can't imagine the fun we had. Nothing could compare. I lived it. I was blessed. If I was to die and go to heaven, it would be a step down. I wonder how many of you would feel the same about your A's. Uh, it's worth thinking about. Uh, I love my A. I'm not quite sure I would give it that kind of Gene Kilroy uh, treatment. Nevertheless, there are clear upsides to being an A. Uh, the joy of it, the access to power, the access to the kings and queens, a seat at the table, the chance to help people, the time and space to think, they're all deep, deep contentments. Uh, Steve Williams, Tiger Woods caddy, also trousered £5 million during the many tournaments and trophies uh, he caddied for um, Tiger. Of course, he also points in his new book to some of the downsides, one of them being uh, one thing that really pissed me off was how flippantly he would toss a club in the general direction of the bag, expecting me to go over and pick it up. So whether you are a caddy or a roadie or whatever you operate as, as a C, unfortunately there are menial tasks that fall to you and the A doesn't always show his or her gratitude uh, for you washing his or, or her balls. Now, uh, these are the kind of private pleasures I talk about uh, and uh, I hope in questions you'll be able to kind of share with the room some other pleasures that you get from being a C if that's the role you perform. Um, I wanted to dwell a little bit on what it takes to survive and thrive as a C. And although this is somewhat irreverent, um, there is a point to this because one of the critical things you have to do as a second or as a C, a conciliary, is to cast your A very carefully. You have to choose your A. You're going to make a hero of that A. And the fact is what makes A's as good as they are, what makes so many A's great winners, brilliant people, great competitive, restless spirits also at times leads them to demonstrate somewhat erratic behavior, in this case very bad behavior. And so you have to cast your A terribly carefully. I think you also have to be at ease with the obvious sacrifices you have to make if you're going to serve an A. One of them being cash. I was told very clearly by my uh, worldwide chairman when I stood down as a chief executive to become a deputy. He sat me down and he said, well, Richard, there's two things I can tell you. You will never now be the chief executive, fine. You will earn a lot less money, both of which are true. And so you have to live with the sacrifices you make. They're not just about status. They're not just about cash. They're also about um, 
perceived authority. They're about giving up that ultimate control. There are significant sacrifices that you have to tolerate and be prepared to make. So what I thought I would do, if, you, if you're up for it, is, is, is share with you some of the consolidated findings of what it is if you're operating with this C muscle, even though some of you may be A's in your own right. If you are, this is what you should look for from your C's. If you're C's, this is what you should be delivering to your A's. And I started very much with emotions because emotions are the things that lead people to act. Reasons lead to conclusions, emotion leads to action. And I think it's very important when you're a C to understand the feelings that you need to generate in your A. There are four, and for the uh, astute you'll see they come up, uh, they, they, they kind of get tidied up in an acronym called LEAD, L-E-A-D. The first of which is uh, great C's liberate their leaders. They leave them feeling lighter, they take the weight of the world off their shoulders. Uh, they provide a kind of constant pulse like that of the drummer uh, in, uh, in the band. So um, cliches about drummers, there are two, but I thought uh, both were worth sharing. The first is that they're the head cases and hod carriers, best relegated to the background. Underappreciated drummers are like football's goalkeepers, the guys you never notice until they've screwed up. The same true, by the way, of undermen at the circus or the caddy in golf. Uh, in his book, Born to Drum, the truth about the world's greatest drummers, Tony Barrell reveals an even more telling truth in my view. He says, a band without a drummer is like a rocking chair that someone has cruelly bolted to the floor. While it may appear to rock, it actually doesn't. So there you are making a, a, a real star of your lead singer. And uh, many, many kind of models for this in your world, in the world of sport, and indeed beyond. This one, Alfie Files, caddying for Tom Watson in that famous duel in the sun where Files said to his golfer, you know, I know you've reached for the number six iron, for those of you who understand golf, but actually you need a seven because your adrenaline is pumping and the ball is going to get carried further. You're going to hit it harder. Absolutely critical intervention by his number two that absolutely kind of uh, uh, played its part in, in the win. There are models beyond our world. For those of you who are fans of the political world and comedy, uh, this is Gary, uh, Celine's, uh, who's the VP in Veep, the comedy series Veep. He's the bag carrier. And what I love about this particular quotation is, is the, the hint at this relationship that C's have with their A's, which at one time feel deeply intimate. You know everything about your A. They probably know quite a bit about you. And yet, at the same time, there are boundaries between you that you should never uh, cross. So there's this kind of uh, brilliant uh, relationship. So one of the things you might ask yourself is, do you have people who are taking the weight of the world off your shoulders? I guess you do, because otherwise you couldn't give up two days to be here. But are you liberating your leaders too? Are you acting as their lodestone, the kind of person who has that quality that attracts all the crap your leader doesn't wish to deal with magnetically and deal with it yourself. The second quality you need as a great C is that of an educator. And, and when I was thinking about this audience, I suspect this probably is the prime role many of you fulfill for your teams, uh, for your players, and indeed for your organizations. You enlighten your leaders, you enlighten your A's. And there are, again, great models for this. The obvious ones uh, from mountaineering, the Sherpa. The Sherpa often knows far more about the route uh, how to navigate to the top of Everest, they also have this uncanny knack of staying out of shot whilst the people who've conquered the summit kind of take selfies of themselves. 
uh, a beautiful quality. There are philosophers, there are people like Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, now brought back by the CEO Satya Nadella to, to act as his conciliary. One wonders whether David Moyes might have succeeded more at Manchester United had he more deliberately asked Alex Ferguson to stay on for a year, maybe sit beside him on the bench, whatever. A controversial thought, uh, you may well disagree. Um, great educators obviously come in many, many uh, people and forms in the coaching world. One of my favorite examples is this great octogenarian, Charlie Munger, who's the brain behind the more famous Warren Buffett, the guy who runs Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, and if any of you have stock in Berkshire Hathaway and have done for a while, um, you, you, you could afford to buy a few more players for Arsenal. But Charlie Munger is a voracious reader. He does what you do. He, he literally absorbs all the content that's out there, all the ideas that are out there, makes connections between what he hears and what he reads back to Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, and Warren Buffett calls him his canary in the coal mine. He's the guy that warns of impending danger. He's also the guy that Warren Buffett himself says is more irreplaceable than Buffett. So when, when asked to talk about his own succession, how on earth will Berkshire Hathaway survive without Warren Buffett? He says, there will, you will find no difficulty replacing me, but good luck finding another Charlie Munger. That's the kind of C you need to be uh, to your A. I was introduced by Mike Ford, who I know has uh, who's been with you, um, to Bruno Di Michaelis, Big Bruno, who was the great man behind Carlo Ancelotti, uh, the, uh, the AC Milan Mindrum, which he brought to Chelsea as well. And listening to him, what, what, what struck me most was um, he looks for leaders to serve who have this same hunger to learn, this same appetite to take data, insight, findings from a wholly different world and see whether they might have use in his context. Uh, and he did that absolutely brilliantly and sought out players like Clarence Seedorf who had that same hunger to learn. So that's the second quality you have, liberate your leader, educate and enlighten your leader. Probably the most important, the one that's most difficult, that requires most courage, is how you anchor your leaders, how you keep them true to who they are, comfortable with the decisions they have to make and the, and the fallout from those decisions. And uh, great anchors come from all sorts of different places. Um, there are people like uh, your close friends. So um, Barack Obama, uh, politics aside, whatever you think of it, he leans on this lady, Valerie Jarrett, who was close to him and Michelle in Chicago. She's known as the third Obama. Many leaders need close friends who they can trust uh, to confide in. Tony Blair uh, looked to Alistair Campbell, of course, as his director of communications uh, and compiler of all sorts of dossiers, but he also looked to him to keep the atmosphere light. So whilst Jonathan Powell, his chief of staff, in terms of protocol, was the guy who should have been accompanying him in the back of his prime, minister, prime ministerial car on the way to PMQs, he actually asked Man, uh, uh, Campbell to do that because Campbell was the guy that took the piss out of him. Campbell used to do a kind of imitation of a northern disc jockey, sending up Tony Blair as an incompetent about to face Prime Minister's question times. And at least for a term or two of uh, Blair's administration, I think he succeeded in keeping Blair very grounded. So you can look to all sorts of people to provide you with that kind of anchoring. Uh, Steve Peters clearly was uh, the guy who anchored uh, David Brailsford, uh, who we uh, have here. Um, and we have people like Elizabeth Warren, who now, uh, rather than run to be the Democratic candidate in the US, has decided she can be more useful from the sidelines, 
really holding people like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders' feet to the fire. So again, a question you might ask yourself is, is whether you have people around you who anchor you in this way, um, whether you have people like uh, Angela Dundee in your corner telling you when you're blowing it, which is what he said to Sugar Ray Leonard in his big fight, you're blowing it, son, you're blowing it. And to question whether people like Nico Rosberg actually has somebody who's truly anchoring him, who's telling him about his behavior. How robustly are they talking to him about how he's taking uh, that role as the number two driver? Relative, say, to uh, David Brailsford, who, who, who somehow manages to get people like Richie Porte to, to sacrifice so much in pursuit of uh, the number one in the team. Um, the one thing I can absolutely guarantee you about A's, and I'm sure you're no different when you're in your A mode, is we can't tolerate yes-men and sycophants. Hugh McElvenny here, I thought, described it beautifully. Uh, uh, what do you need to be an anchor for Mr. Abramovich, a zealous and indefatigable talent for agreeing with the master's wishes? That appears to be the main qualification for occupying such behind-scene roles. That might sound harsh, but you will know when people are basically blowing smoke, when they're telling you what they think you want to hear as opposed to what you need to hear. Great anchors tell the truth, however tough uh, that might feel. And then the final quality is one of helping your leaders feel and be decisive. There is nothing that out-and-out -out leaders, accountable leaders, love more than going home at night saying, I did this, I did this, I did this, tick achieve, tick achieve. So C's who help make things happen for their A's are heroes in their organizations. And there are many ways to do that. Um, I share an office, uh, or, or very close, I sit opposite Sean Fitzpatrick, who uh, I didn't know was a famous All Black until he shook my hand and I started to ask questions about who that guy was. Um, he made sense of what Coach John Hart was trying to share with his players. He was the kind of on-field conciliary for his uh, coach. Um, Fran Miller, translator to David Brailsford, she can go out and actually say, this is what now needs to happen, getting things done. Paul Dayton, Lord Dayton now, was the great fixer of the Olympic, not fixer in the wrong sense, by the way, of Olympic 2012, I realize, topical problem there. Um, I wonder whether Seb Cohen, his new guys as president of, uh, of Worldwide Athletics, will bring in Dayton to help him clear up uh, the mess that he's clearly inherited. We all need people to fix for us. They can often be really unpopular. So if you're, if you're an enforcer, a fixer, um, a gopher, someone who makes things happen, you have to court a lot of unpopularity. You have to suffer it. Uh, this is Sally Bradshaw, who's known as the Jeb Whisperer. She's currently enforcing the Jeb Bush. And they talk here about the leading cause of professional death in the Bush entourage is her inability to control you. That's uh, not something that plays out particularly well. So I thought in the remaining 20 minutes, what we might do is I'd just offer you a few reflections, a few passing thoughts, and then if you're up for it, to get into a discussion about some of the challenges uh, around this relationship between A and C. The first thing that I want to stress, I didn't set out to kind of uh, with this in mind, but the more I talk to great leaders, the people behind great leaders, the more I realized that to be a complete leader, if that's your aspiration, you really should try both roles. Uh, for those of you who are um, hiring and trying to retain particularly young millennial talent coming into your workplaces, your organizations, your sporting entities, there is no question that these people crave much more lateral opportunity, a kind of broader range of leadership experiences than the kind of linear climb that maybe has obsessed people of my generation. 
younger aspiring leaders, emerging leaders, look at the kind of crazy ladder we've attempted to climb. They don't even see the ladder. It's a sort of existential thing. They, they look at us like we're balmy, that we could possibly have spent years climbing up all the rungs. When on average, according to data we've collected at London Business School, most young leaders will have probably 16 different jobs during their lifetime. And that that doubles in each generation. So those of you who've got young kids, welcome to a world where you're going to be asking your kids 32 times what it is they do. So what I'm suggesting is, to, to be a brilliant leader, you need to know how to exercise your A muscle. You need to know how to make the big decisions, to live with that, how to, how to live in the glare of the media. But you also, as a C, need to know how to persuade without the stripes, without the authority, without the captain's armband, without the chief executive's kind of ultimate power. And, and great leaders somehow do know how to do both. They have a bias for one or the other. I have zero doubt that I'm a better C than I was an A, and I wish I'd known that earlier because I could have made a bigger contribution to the leadership, I think, over the course of my life, as a, more, more often as a C than an A. But I think I'm a better C for having tried uh, being an A. Um, the second thing to say is there are dark sides to this, and you will, you'll be able to appreciate very quickly and identify some of the kind of natural dark places you go to as both an A and a C. I've alluded to the dark side of the A. They fall in love with themselves. There is no question. Great A's often are born of people who were starved of praise when they were younger or given too much. So then they are narcissists by, by their DNA, by very dint of their appropriateness for leadership. The, the seeds of their self-destruction are kind of sown into their employment contracts. They can't help themselves. And uh, their weakness, of course, in relation to the C's, is they don't thank them, they're not grateful for them, they don't realize that great C's need time and space to think, they need gratitude, they need a certain degree of access to the organization, they need time with their A. Uh, and I know over the course of my life, some A's, they look mystified when you say, can we, can we sit down and talk about the relationship, because they think that's for softies. Well, great A's know the relationship really matters, and gratitude matters, and, and acknowledgement matters. All of those things matter. That's what C's feed off. But there is a dark side to the C too, and history is littered with C's who got this wrong. The C who believes that he or she has become so indispensable to the A that but for them, their A would be up some kind of creek without many different paddles. The people who go home at night going their A has totally lost the plot, and really, uh, they should give the, the, the lead to you, even, even if you don't want it. So there are really dark sides to this, uh, and uh, you need to be very careful. Because the organization, if you're a defining C to your A, can, can get rather envious of you. Other Cs look at you as the major C and go, why is it he or she has got the ear of the boss? What, what is it they discuss that I don't know about? What is he or she saying about me? And uh, the CFO is almost certainly saying, you know, where's the money? What is it they really contribute? These people who bring, bring the data, can we not do without them? So you have to have a tough skin, and you have to absolutely be authentic to your role as a C. Whilst you're, whilst you're a C, you cannot but cannot uh, attempt uh, to, to, to be the A as well. The, the, the real problems lie where the C actually harbors an ambition to be the A, to get that job, but doesn't declare it. Which brings me to my last uh, kind of reflection, which is, which is the following. Um, reciprocity is everything. 
the, the, the relationship between A and C is, is critical. And I don't believe anything like enough time, energy, or skill is devoted to a candid, regular appraisal of the quality of that relationship. How are we doing together? How do I help you? How do I piss you off? Um, what is it I've done recently that you, you really value? What is it I've done recently that meant you went home to your partner and were squeaking with rage about something I did? Um, what is it that you truly value? When did I last liberate you, anchor you, etc.? These are conversations that have to take place if you're going to endure uh, a really thriving uh, leadership relationship together. So reciprocity is everything. Machiavelli is often invoked as the kind of the guy who stands for dark leadership. And it's true, Machiavellian has become a descriptor of some naughty behavior. But the truth is, what he was trying to define in his work back in the day was how princes and ministers should work together for good outcomes. You might not agree with the outcomes he was after, but for, for, for strong, robust relationships, what is it that ministers and princes have to agree amongst themselves to, to generate a really thriving relationship? So those of you tempted after you bought Fergie's book to buy another one, uh, will see at the back of my book a kind of mock, ironic, hopefully quite light-hearted guide to how the A should have a, a conversation with a C, how a C should have a conversation with an A. And give it a go is my recommendation. So that's all I had to say uh, by way of uh, some themes from the book, but also some themes gathered from conversations I've had uh, since then. Uh, and uh, if you're up for it, I would absolutely love questions, ideas, even violent disagreement. I'm small, but I can take it, and it's good for my match fitness. So I'm going to hand over the microphone. There is a roving mic. And anybody with a question, idea, something they want to share, please shout out uh, as, as loud as you can. Yes, thank you. How do you, uh, your stage where being authentic, uh, being one of the things, and then having your A feel they're decisive. Yeah. So that you're sort of second-guessing being the devil's disciple to the A, and then you want him to feel decisive when you just have second-guessed him or her. Uh, okay. Well, two things. That's great. Number one, A's hate to be second-guessed. Really good A's hate to be second-guessed. If they, if they knew the answer, they wouldn't need you. So I, I'm not suggesting you second-guess them. Great C's can anticipate what's on the horizon. Great C's kind of look at the data. They synthesize the situation. They synthesize the issue. And they might say... Here are th here's what's happening, and here are three things you might want to consider. But I don't think they should second-guess the answer the boss has in mind. When the boss has considered that, they are then able to make a decision. And my view is that then the C's job is to create the environment among the team to execute the A's wishes. What is it the A now has decided they want to see happen? Now, as, 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 a, as a C and a deliverer, how do I ensure that really does happen? To give you an example, um, David Gill told me that um, he had very limited access to Alex Ferguson. He had access whenever he wanted, but they had a routine status meeting every Friday morning. And he would go to Fergie's office in Carrington, and he'd sit down, and he'd just say, what's on your mind? And Sir Alex Ferguson would download what was on his mind. He'd say, I want the trees cut down there, and I want this happening at the training pitch. And, I want it. and Gill would go away, having prioritized the kind of the key things that Alex Ferguson wanted to see happen, and he would use the resources at his command to make those things happen. 
So he was a deliverer for Alex Ferguson, but he was never in any doubt that the guy who ran the, ran the football club was Sir Alex Ferguson, whatever the Glazers may have to say about that. Yes? Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, you discussed, you mentioned the word narcissism when talking yes. about A's. Yeah. Um, what would you see as similar personality traits with B's, and why would you say people are attracted to being bees. Okay, no bees, no bees. Um, I'm not allowing bees because, here's it, I'm not allowing number twos, bees, or anything, or seconds even, because, have you noticed there is an implied something in that? There is a kind of a hierarchy embedded that relegates all you people who operate in this kind of brilliant space to a, a subordinate position. You know, I, people would often say, and they do, certainly in the UK, I can't speak for other cultures, uh, but, you know, he's a great number two. And immediately, the kind of the backhander there is, therefore, not cut out to be a number one. So, sorry, I'm just pouncing on you there. It's A's and C's, but uh, a great question about what qualities are, are, are you looking for? What attracts people to C's? I think, um, above all else, I mean... that. Things like being able to see ahead, being able to catalyze and be creative, uh, the kind of um, quiet authority that comes, the calming uh, authority that comes with great Cs. I believe, although you cannot be a great A, an out-and-out -out leader, without having heavy doses of emotional intelligence these days, in my view, Cs somehow have um, EQ on steroids, and they have the time in which to help other people. So I think great C's are selfless. You know, I think David Brosford described himself as the conductor, an orchestra conductor, but you know, he's basically subordinating his ego to the greater egos of people like Bradley Wiggins. You know, there's some self-sacrifice around great C's that if it's authentic, uh, I think is, is very attractive. Probably the best C I ever hired, um, a lady who worked for me for six, seven years, she's now in the US, um, she had this extraordinary ability to, to, to work in a room like this and to help other people land their best ideas, even if she knew the answer, back to your second guessing, even if she had a point of view. She'd somehow coach and, and, and tease out the best idea from people, even the most introvert people in a group. Uh, and that's a very, very attractive quality if you have it. Yes? Um, aspiring to win is often a quality we use here as opposed to winning. Um, I think it was Churchill who said that two, two close colleagues will always get on, providing they think they're better than each other. What's your view on that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I think uh, and maybe this hints at your narcissism point, C's are the great ones driven by a desire to win. They are competitive, and they, um, they, they want to be accountable. There is, there's nothing about great C's that says, I want such an easy life, I'm not up for the kind of hard yards, and I don't believe in myself enough, uh, I don't believe I'm as good as the A. So I, on that dimension, I'm with Churchill. Um, it's a fine line, though. If, for example, you think, you look at your A and you think, I could do a better job than him or her in that moment, I would say red flag. Um, Alistair Campbell said to me that he felt often, he'd look at the, you know, uh, the PM, or indeed Gordon Brown, when he worked for Gordon Brown, and he thought, you know, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that, and maybe he could, but he had the humility to say, when it came to running the numbers and being a chancellor, not 
A, hope in hell, could I do that? So I think you have to have, first of all, you have to have an affection for your A. You have to trust them. And I do think you have to admire them for what it is they uniquely do in that moment. Otherwise, I believe you're in trouble. Yeah. In your model, how do you reconcile a person who's both an A and a C? Um, I, I, I believe that um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is say many people are. Out, throughout the organization, many people should be. I think it's good for leadership that you can be a project manager on this and in charge on this. You can be an advisor to somebody over here whilst you're wholly accountable for a delivery over here. What, I, what the model suggests uh, and implies is that we should be more conscious about which mode we're in during the day or during our different assignments. Too often, uh, as, when you're in C mode, as a chief executive, for example, you, you forget that you're in C mode and you behave like a chief exec. You behave like an A when you're meant to be being a C and vice versa. Um, the, the model originally came from a, a project management system we run at Saatchi called RASCI, which I'll briefly explain. We, I conflated it into just A and C. But on any project, um, the trouble emerges when people aren't clear about their roles. You know this. But this RASCI system uh, is brilliant because it says for every project, there is one single person responsible, the R. There is a, an overall approver, the A. There are people who help do the work, the S's. There are then those people you look to for advice and counsel, the C's, and people who are there simply to inform. They need to know what's going on. And too often we kind of muddle it all up and we just assume that hierarchy prevails, so the most senior person is the person responsible for the project. And this system actually allows for 26-year-olds to be the A, supported by or counseled by you know, the really experienced CEO. So all I'm suggesting is know when you're being asked to be the A, know when you're asked to be the C, and be very, very public about it. I would often write memos to people saying, as a C, I would counsel the following. And I think it's just very good to, to headline it. Which role am I playing? So there's no ambiguity. That's, uh, that's one answer. Quite a long one. Any, any other questions? Anybody, anybody who kind of looks at this model and goes, no, nah, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. I don't buy it. There's going to be some of you. Yes. Well, I, I think it works. Um, is there a chance, can you transfer this into um, a sporting team? You know, like uh, Tour de France team, I can see an A and I can see a couple of Cs. Yes. Does this work on a football team? Does it work somewhere else as well? If well, you create it. Yeah, I, I do believe it, it does. I mean, you know, I've, so I, I, you probably uh, know I declared my hand. I'm, I'm kind of ill with a passion for Manchester United. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my absolute all-time favorite players, Paul Scholes, uh, who, of course, could score goals uh, and very spectacular ones, um, but I think was a kind of creator of opportunities for other people. Uh, and so in my model, at least, I would look at Scholes and think, yeah, occasionally he would, he would pop up front and score, but on the whole, he was, his defining contribution was a, as a C, whereas there were a more obvious A's, the people who took command on the field, uh, whether they, you know, they were the Roy Keens or indeed people playing up front and, and, and the striker. Uh, so I do believe it works in teams. It absolutely works in a kind of Tour de France uh, situation where people, you know, they literally will live with the disappointment of never, ever winning a tour, but being part of a winning team. 
The same has to be true of uh, Formula One, where all the people who do those kind of crazy two-second pit stops, you know, they are the heroes. In many respects, they're the people who allow uh, the, the great drivers to go on and win. So I, I do think it translates into any kind of team, whether it's a permanent one or even a temporary one. Just a rough show of hands, how many people in the room actually would love to be the ultimate A or are the ultimate A of their current organization? Just a quick show of hands, the ultimate A. Okay, so actually large numbers of you who are Cs. Of those of you who are Cs, how many aspire to be the A one day? Just a quick show of hands, how many people? Okay, brilliant. Because I think, I think being a great C is a fantastic training ground for what I believe to be the emerging qualities of a great A. You know, if you do, if you're fascinated by leadership and you look at the academic work, there, there is a lot of material about A's who need to start getting a little less kind of uh, rampantly egotistical. Um, and taken to an extreme, there is a guy in America called Tony Shea who runs Zappos, uh, who actually believes teams don't need leaders at, at all. Uh, there's a kind of uh, holacracy exists where you share everything. Uh, my own view is that's kind of democracy gone mad, and I don't think many sporting organizations would work without a captain or a general manager or a head coach, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely an area that's, that's, that's very dynamic. We've got two minutes to go, but you're more than welcome to finish early. Maybe we'll take the last question. Yes. It strikes me in any organization uh, that A's and C's will be different in different situations. So, you know, Alex Ferguson, clearly an A, but at the same time when they're talking about, you know, commercial revenue or something like that for the club would definitely not be the A in, in those situations. So isn't a situation in, in, in an organization much more mixed where in the in certain areas, people are A's, but then have to be C's in other areas. Absolutely. I think that's critical. You know, the situational context is vital. What I'm calling for is just total, honest, unambiguous clarity that on matters of money, David Gill is the A. On team selection, Alex Ferguson is the A. In both, each would operate as a C for each other. That definitely is the case. Uh, and I think, uh, and I would extend it further. I think Alex Ferguson, in relationship, say, to Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, or Ryan Giggs, or Paul Scholes, operates like David Brailsford does for his riders as a C. You know, he would say he was there as a father figure to Ronaldo. So, I absolutely believe the situation uh, and the context around that is everything. But being explicit about I'm here as your C, as opposed to as your boss will fundamentally alter the tone of the conversation and the outcome. I'll draw that to a close. Thank you so much for your attention. Anybody who's interested, uh, you can uh, have a look at the book or, or what's been written about it on uh, conciliarybook.com. Or if you want to write to me and learn more about Beta Baboons at richard at betababoon.co.uk. On that note, I leave you uh, back in the, the great hands of your organizers.